0: Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. It is that time of the year again where we start talking about all things Christmas. I know, I know, how have we gotten to this point in the year already? It literally only seems like yesterday that I first started this podcast, but of course it was actually back in January, so we're nearly one, so we will be doing something uh, fancy for that in January. But anyway, on to this week's episode. We are going to be looking at Krampus, and if you're anything like me, you probably hadn't really heard of Krampus before probably about 2014. Because it was in 2015 that he basically poked his horned head out into the limelight, because having your own Hollywood movie will do that to your media profile. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at Krampus as almost the anti-Santa, and we're going to get into some of the, the myths about him, some of the things that have been talked about him. And also compare him to Santa Claus as well. So Krampus has been well known in Alpine regions for centuries, particularly around Austria. And then while the feast of St Nicholas takes place on December the 6th, the evening before is Krampusnacht when Krampus comes to town. Now, smithsonian.com have an article where they reckon that Krampus is actually the son of Hel, the Norse goddess of the underworld. Not to be confused with Hela from Thor Ragnarok, because let's be honest, Marvel do kind of play a bit fast and loose with Norse mythology. But Al Noah actually refutes this Nordic connection, and he says it was invented by Brom in Krampus the Yule Lord, so it's completely made up. And the idea of him having pre-Christian origins actually doesn't necessarily make sense. And for him, Krampus is this purely Austrian figure. So many articles tout his apparently pre-Christian origins. But like I say, Raidenor actually says that St. Nicholas always had a dark helper. And there was a previous incarnation, Necht Ruprecht, who was actually the saint's servant. But by the 17th century, St. Nicholas had hired Krampus. And Ridenour makes a point that we should actually call him the Krampus, not just Krampus, because his name refers to a group of creatures, not a singular being. So that's a bit like saying vampires rather than Dracula. Now legend has it, and this is where we're getting into what Krampus has to do with Christmas, legend has it that St Nicholas and Krampus do the Christmas rounds together. So St Nicholas leaves candy for good children and twigs for the bad ones. Now this pre-Santa Claus figure doesn't just automatically dispense presents for the sake of it. Children basically have to earn gifts. Krampus on the other hand punishes the extra naughty ones so he might beat them with branches or haul them off to his lair and according to National Geographic he takes naughty children to the underworld but again this could have the links to this whole, always actually from the Norse mythology so I'm we can take that one possibly with a bit of a pinch of salt. Now Krampus is covered in fur, he's got horns and he's got cloven hooves. Now that might make him sound awfully similar to another notorious figure, but I should point out mythology is full of ancient horned creatures who wait in the dark and nearly all of them have literally nothing to do with the devil. Our ride Noah, actually points out that many of our depictions of Krampus come from postcards of him and he knows, these are known as Krampus Carton. And these were often drawn by artists who were many miles away from the celebrations. They didn't have any photographs to draw on. They had no idea what things looked like. So instead, they drew their images of Krampus based on traditional images of the devil or Pan. So where we think of them as looking quite devilish or like Pan the goat god, it's entirely possible that it's just because these original artists basically had nothing else to go on. In some versions of the legends, he carries bells, and in others, he carries a sack to take away evil children. And this latter story might actually be explained by raids on European coasts when locals were abducted into slavery. I'm a little bit sceptical about that because of the fact that obviously he is very much an Alpine figure, but this is indeed what I found while I was doing the research. And the church has tried several times to ban Krampusnack celebrations, but he's basically managed to cling on as the anti santa So why do we need a dark Santa in the first place? You might be sitting there thinking, you know what, Christmas is this wonderful, cheerful, light time of the year. We shouldn't be sort of farting on with this sort of dark figure who's coming round to punish children. But remember, yes, Christmas is this supposedly light and cheerful time of the year. Some might argue it's just simply commercial now, but that's not for me to say. However, we should point out that in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, Christmas is still in the middle of winter. So it's still dark, it's usually cold, you've either got a lot of rain or you've got snow and in centuries past people would be worried about having enough food to see them through the dark nights and this is the time of year where you've got the ghost story where people are basically sitting around trying to frighten each other and they're dealing with all things kind of dark and scary really because that's the time of year that it is. So it's hardly surprising that a positive figure like St Nicholas would need a dark and threatening opposite as well. For Rydenor, Krampus and I quote, seems to express the requisite countercultural contempt for the Coca-Cola guzzling, bloated patriarch of all that is consumerist and parental, end quote. And Rydenor also tries to claim Krampus as an icon of the rebellion, the last contemptuous symbol of the punk generation before they settled down and have families, and this all comes from the, the resurgence of interest in Krampus. Now my problem with this argument is Rydenor is writing from an American perspective, so he's talking about sort of Krampus suddenly taken on this symbolism for people who sort of were punks in the 60s and 70s and it then sort of dovetailing with when um, when people started celebrating Krampus in America but he seems to at this point have forgotten that obviously Krampus was still being celebrated in Europe whether there was a counterculture or not. So again, yes that helps to explain Krampus's fascination in America but less so in Europe. And I also disagree with these attempts to link the resurgence of Krampus with the American slasher film because there are quite a lot of Christmas slasher films. I mean, Black Christmas, the original 1974 one and Silent Night, Bloody Night both spring to mind as sort of Christmas slasher films. And these predate Halloween which is usually seen as the start of the slasher by a few years. But I do think even if you can't link them with the resurgence of the slasher film set at Christmas I do think that he has a point where he highlights this Victorian fascination with all things ghostly. Because you're more likely to see dangerous things in the dark when it's dark a lot sooner. So I guess from that point I can agree with him. But I, I don't agree that you can say, yeah, people are interested in Krampus now because we have horror films. That That's just bizarre. But Krampus does act as a natural counterbalance with St Nicholas, like I said. And other countries have their own dark centre, such as Trap in France and Zwarte Piet in the Netherlands. But it's not really just an anti-Santa that we have to worry about, because I'll ride Noah links Krampus with the mumming traditions of Europe. And here people dressed up to enact, and I quote, often slap sick folk plays, end quote, with their common theme of death and resurrection. And the Welsh Leward fits into this tradition, which is a horse skull on a pole with its operator obscured by a sheet. You may have seen images of these doing the rounds on social media recently, and they do look pretty terrifying. And basically what happened is groups would carry this horse or the horse head on a stick basically around the local area, very much a Welsh tradition. They'd knock on doors and then sing songs for the householder to try and be invited in. And the practice declined in the mid-20th century, but then newer versions have revived in later decades. Now this tradition of mummers plays does relate to Christmas, but there are also versions happening at Easter and also Halloween. And you'll often find references to mummers in texts dating way back to the Middle Ages. Now, nobody really knows what the medieval mummers plays look like because no scripts survive. But in their current form, actually dates to the mid-18th century. And basically what happens is the players wear masks or hats that hide their face. And there's usually, the, the most common plot is a fight between two characters that leads to the death of one combatant. And a doctor then arrives who who revives the fallen character, usually with some kind of magic potion. There's a lot of comedy in them. Obviously, as I say, they're quite slapstick. And this was something that would traditionally happen around sort of the Christmas period. And then this has changed over the years. As I say, you've then got the house visiting traditions like the Marilud. But then you've also got Mummering, which is a version of the Mummer's plays, which involves house visiting at Christmas in Newfoundland and this was actually introduced by English and Irish settlers and it still goes on now. You can find images online and basically people visit houses in their community while in disguise and the homeowners have to guess who they are. The players then remove their masks if their identity is guessed. The groups have a bit of food and drink in the house and then they move on to the next one. So you might wonder what this has necessarily got to do with Krampus. It's just this idea of people dressing up at christmas as somebody that they are not and this is going to become important in just a second now riding actually notes the christmas figure of the bell in who's kind of a version of of mummering and he was quite a threatening creature who was introduced to rural pennsylvania in the 1800s by german immigrants now his tradition actually lasted until the 1930s and in this one this figure would dress in ragged furs and he would brandish a whip And he would chase adults and children alike and he would actually sometimes just burst into people's homes without any kind of invitation or anything like that at all. So he sort of takes the idea of these mummers' plays of visiting houses in disguise that one step further. Which, to be honest with you, if you think about Santa Claus, St Nicholas and Krampus, they all kind of come into the house almost uninvited, like they're expected, but nobody actually opens the door and lets them in. And this is where we come back round to Krampus again. And Krampus actually appears on modern greeting cards now. But he has done since the 19th century. And there was actually a whole Krampus industry that started in 1890. And what happens now is on Krampusnacht, folk in the Alpine regions basically dress their men in fur and masks. And there's a glorious picture on my website. And the blog post for this is just icysedwig.com forward slash Krampus. And there's a picture of a Krampus wielding a chainsaw. Because that clearly says ancient folk tradition. Now these Krampuses, because that apparently is the correct plural, I checked, they rattle their chains and they basically run through the streets. And this is called the Krampuslauf, which means Krampus run. And so basically, yeah, you have like 300 men in some places just running around dressed as Krampus. And in Leens, the town officials actually educated the newcomers from Syria and Afghanistan when we had all the refugees moving around Europe they actually let them know what was going on because if you think about it if you'd never heard of Krampusnacht and you moved to this new town and all of a sudden on this one night of the year these people dressed up and you wouldn't even necessarily know they were dressed up in like horns and full fur and masks and they suddenly started running around the town you'd be a bit bewildered if not terrified. But as I say these mumming traditions do have a really long history and it's sort of part of that idea of dressing up to celebrate a particular time of the year. You also have another one at Christmas, which is the battle between the Oak and the Holly King, and that's where they'll kind of reenact this battle. The Oak King wins because he rules from Yule to midsummer, and then at midsummer the Holly King then defeats him and he rules until Yule again and basically it's kind of an an opportunity for the community to get out and celebrate something together. It does have to be said, I did read quite a lot of news stories about the Krampus snack celebrations, and it does seem to have just tipped into an excuse to mix alcohol and fancy dress, which is possibly a bit of a shame, but I suppose if people are enjoying it, then that's the main thing. Obviously, Krampus himself finally made his way into wider popular culture in 2004, when he popped up in a Christmas special of The Venture Brothers. And since then, he's also been in Supernatural, Grim, and American Dad. And obviously, in 2015, he got his own film. But the thing is, despite his recent commercialisation, he is still this shadowy figure who kind of lurks at the edge of Christmas. And many people will never even engage with him. But he still knows if you've been nice or naughty. So the question is, is he going to be paying you a visit this year? That is the end of our Krampus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something new. I'm not entirely sure how your kids will feel if you suddenly, you know, leave twigs for them at Christmas. But there you go. Next week we're going to be having a look at the folklore of Holly. And we're also going to be looking at the folklore of Mistletoe before Christmas. And I am going to be putting up a special bonus ghost story episode just before Christmas. And this is going to be one of my ghost stories that I actually read at an event last year. And I'm going to do a proper reading of that one. And obviously that'll be absolutely free, part of the podcast, and that's like my Christmas present to you. So without any further ado, I hope you have a lovely week ahead and I will see you soon. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick, spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio.